This morning we have the privilege of reading chapter 28 of Matthew together. Please open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew 28. This morning we'll be reading the entire chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles in the back, you'll find this on page 835. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people... His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, we're wrapping up the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 28. If you're a guest with us, thanks for honoring us with your presence. And uh, if you're in town again, if you're just visiting family, we hope you hope to see you again at some point in the future. Also, welcome to the Baldwins. They were able to watch us online and see all that. So glad that they can be with us this morning as well. Before I pray and uh, get into this text, um, here's our theme this morning that we're going to unpack from Matthew chapter 28. It is, what is our mission as a church, and what encouragement does this passage give us to strengthen us for that mission? So what is our mission as a church, and what does this passage give us by way of encouragement and strength to fulfill the mission that Jesus has called us to? Let's pray before we dive in this morning. Father, thank you for inspiring Matthew the disciple of your son, to write this gospel for our benefit, for our instruction, for our salvation. Thank you that in it we encounter your risen son, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that we get to, as we conclude this book this morning, we get to reflect on him as he presently is. The one who has been given all authority by you in heaven and on earth. Such that we can now go into all the nations according to his command. Make disciples, baptize, teach them. Knowing that, Lord Jesus, you are with us always by the presence and power of your spirit until the very end of the age. So we thank you for this. We thank you for the hope that we have and the fact that the tomb is empty and that there is news to tell. So we pray that you would draw near to us in this time together. Speak to us clearly from your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Here's the outline this morning as we unpack this theme of what is our mission and how does this passage help and encourage to strengthen us to do it. First of all, we're going to look at the command that Jesus gives in verse 19 and really drill down there and unpack. And I know it's very, very familiar to us. The command that Jesus gives to the church or to his 11 disciples, which plant the church and found the church and and uh, given to us in verse 19. And then we're going to look at the two, the rest of this passage, which really serves to give us strength and encouragement to do what Jesus has commanded us to do. So let's drill down first in verse 19 and look at the command that Jesus gives us. And here we have our mission. We have our marching orders right here in verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to very quickly, I hope, biblically dismiss an objection that sometimes gets thrown at this passage. I don't think it's nearly as popular today, but certainly it was an objection in days past and I'm sure is still around at some, to some degree. And that is the objection that the Great Commission is, was only given to the apostles and therefore does not apply to the church or specifically to Christians today. You may have heard that objection. And while it is true contextually that the great what we have come to call the Great Commission here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, certainly was given to the apostles, it was not only for the apostles. The command that Jesus gives is to go into all the nations and to teach, to, to convert those nations through the preaching of the gospel and then to teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded them, including the command to make disciples. D.A. Carson notes that the Great Commission does not record Jesus saying to the apostles the following, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you except for this commandment to make disciples. Keep their grubby hands off that one since that belongs only to you, my dear apostles. End quote. No, we are commanded to go and make disciples. The apostles did it. We're supposed to do it. It's part of the all things that Jesus gave us to do. And if you just read the book of Acts, you see how that works and you see it get played out. Because the example in the early chapters of the book of Acts is ordinary believers going and making disciples. It's not just the apostles. For instance, in Acts chapter 8 verse 1... Following the stoning of Stephen, we read, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, they, meaning the disciples, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And what did those ordinary believers do? Acts chapter 8, verse 4 tells us that following that scattering, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That is, they went about making disciples. One noted historian makes this observation about the spread of the gospel, especially in the book of Acts. 
He says, quote, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, say elders or pastors, or a major part of their occupation, but men and women who earned their livelihood in some purely secular manner and spoke of their faith to those whom they met in this natural fashion, end quote. So that this is incumbent upon all of us to take this command to make disciples seriously. Now, if you'll notice the structure of verse 19, there is one command given, and then there are three what we might call participles that teach us how to fulfill that command. So the one command in verse 19 is to make disciples, to go and make disciples. Now, the now the participles or the how-to of how to do that is going, first part of verse 19, baptizing, and verse 20, teaching. So the going, the baptizing, and the teaching are the how the disciples are made. So let's think about that for a minute. First of all, let's think about the command. Go and make disciples. All right, a disciple is a learner, a follower, a student of a teacher or master. So we are to go and help other people come to know Jesus and follow him. That's our call. He doesn't say, go build the membership roles of a church. He doesn't say, go and get as many names on it as possible. He doesn't say, go out and get as many people to assent to the truth of the gospel as you can. He doesn't say, go out and get people to pray a prayer or walk an aisle. He doesn't say, go out and get people to sign a card. He says, go out and make disciples. So first, he tells us we have to go, which implies that disciples, we should say potential disciples, are not just going to show up to us. That we as God's people have to go to them. Go out. Don't wait for them to come to us. Go to them. We are given the initiatory responsibility in this relationship. So we must be the ones who initiate to others for the sake of discipleship. And there is a clear idea given here that once we've gone, we carry with us what the disciples in Acts 8 carried with them, which is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We preach that to people. We, we declare that to people. And as a result of that, some of them, by the work and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, will believe in Jesus and receive the gospel of his life, death, burial, resurrection, for us and for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins and the providing of a righteousness that we need to stand before God on the day of judgment, whereby he can say to us, you are righteous. You are accepted in my sight. See, every one, every person, brothers and sisters, every single person in this world is born in relationship to God. See, oftentimes it's, it's said, you know, we share the gospel. We need to help people have a relationship with God. No, they already have a relationship with God, and it's on seriously bad terms. They have a relationship with God. Every single person who's born in the world, uh, in the image of God, is born under the law of God and accountable to fulfill it. And they don't. And we don't. And so our mission is to go help them give them the good news that can reconcile them to a right relationship with God. 
that can help them get out from under the wrath of God and be brought into the family of God. And that comes through the work of Jesus Christ alone and repentance of sin and faith in him. So if people receive that, then what do we do? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which means that discipleship cannot happen without a public acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and Lord of you specifically. Because that's what baptism is. It's a profession of the lordship of Christ. So Jesus is saying that you can't be a disciple until you publicly acknowledge me as Lord through baptism. Which necessitates the local church, does it not? By baptizing, he's reminding us that discipleship cannot happen without the communion of the saints. You can't be a disciple as a lone ranger. You've got to be a part of the body of Christ. You can't become a disciple of Christ in isolation. You've got to be a part of the church. So we go, we baptize, and we teach. And notice the kind of teaching that's emphasized here by Jesus. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus is not satisfied that all of his disciples who are part of a local church would just study and learn. He's not satisfied until we begin to live the Christian life. Live it out. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to be intrigued by the intellectual nuances of Christian doctrine. He wants us to be transformed in our living by the truth. So notice how he holds teaching and knowledge and doing all together. He says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's there's our mission. There's our mission. It can be summarized very simply. A disciple is a learner or follower of Jesus. So our mission is to go out and work to see people who don't follow Jesus right now come to follow him and then teaching them to more faithfully follow him along with us for the rest of our life. So bringing people who don't follow him to follow him and then helping them faithfully follow him in every area area of their lives, which is what it means to observe all that he's commanded us. Now, I know that you have heard sermons on this before. And I know you have read this text before. And I know that many of you could quote this passage. Many Christians hear this, and here's what we do. We file it away in the cabinet of idealism. That's what we do. That's a good thing to try to do. It's a good ideal to have. It's like, I'd like to disciple people. I'd like to be help do that, but I can't. And they feel like discipleship is just above their pay grade. This is way too much. It's way too high of a command and too high of a calling. But is that true? Is that true? Is discipleship something that only a few in the church are mature enough to do? Or is this something that can be for everyone in the church? See, here's what I want to say about this in applying this command to us. Disciple-making, brothers and sisters, is ordinary Christianity. Disciple-making is ordinary Christianity. What do I mean by that? It's just fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. It's like learning to count or learning to say your alphabet. There is scarcely any part of the Christian life that discipleship does not touch. Insofar as Christianity is a community faith, it's a disciple-making faith. Now, I know 
that there are probably people in this room who have a dozen different paradigms flying around in your mind of what you think of when you hear the word discipleship. You might be thinking, okay, I got to meet with somebody and read a book with them. Or I need to meet for coffee three times a week. Or I need to eat a meal. I need to get a workout buddy. And all these are good things. Not wrong. One way in which the command to make disciples can be fulfilled. But those are not prerequisites that Jesus gives, nor are they intrinsic to the substance of what discipleship means. Jesus never gave a program for discipleship. But he gave us his example and a broad, far-reaching command to do it. He didn't attach a lot of specifics or how-tos, which I think should foster within us a sense of great freedom in the obedience to this command and a great burden for it. So what does it look like? What does it look like when Jesus commands us to make disciples? How does that intentional living that's seeking to show the worth and power of Christ, letting people in to see how we live out our Christian faith, what does that look like practically? Well, I'm just going to give you some examples of what it could look like. Okay, I'm just trying to paint a vision here so that we don't lock it up. We don't lock up this command to make disciples as in, in just sort of one, you know, one pathway or one particular expression of faithfulness. There are lots of ways to faithfully express and obey this command. Let me give you some of them. First of all, discipleship can happen when a guy who wants to be married and doesn't have a real game plan for how to go about that, asks a brother in Christ who's older and married for help. And this brother takes him out for lunch and talks him through some biblical principles and practical examples, and then he commits to pray for him and makes himself available for questions, and they meet occasionally to talk and check in on each other. That's discipleship. Or what about a mom with two toddlers, drops something off that she borrowed from another sister at the church, And during that exchange, they get to talking and the young mom expresses her feelings of how tired she is and fatigued and discouraged she is with this particular child and how she's struggling here and her failure to measure up to whatever her perceived standards of motherhood are. And then that other woman listens to her, reminds her of the scriptures, prays with her, and then continues to come alongside her for encouragement in the gospel. That's discipleship. Discipleship happens when a dad who's on vacation at Panama City Beach with his kids and they're driving. He's got two sons and they're going up to the beach and they just see all sorts of immodesty. And the dad takes an opportunity to speak to his sons about that. That's discipleship. Or how about a brother who notices another brother is running hard after his job and he's beginning to neglect family and ministry. And all of his time and energy seems to be devoted in getting the promotion or climbing the corporate ladder or devoting more and more of his time to his work where his soul's beginning to hurt and his family's beginning to be affected. And then a brother comes alongside of him and reminds them, brother, you know where your lasting treasure should be? Where's your lasting treasure? This isn't, I mean, it's good to, it's good to have, let me have you, help you have a proper perspective of work. It's good to be devoted to your calling. It's good to pour yourself out and run yourself ragged so you're tired at the end of the day. But you're not meant to do that as a goal and mission in life. Or discipleship happens with when a mom is at the park with her kids. And at one point, 
which I know you can never imagine this happening, one of those children becomes unruly and disobeys their mother. But she patiently and graciously but faithfully disciplines her children. And then there's people watching her and seeing how she interacts. And both the unbelieving and the believing women are intrigued about this. And they begin conversations about discipline. And that's discipleship. Or how about when a homeschool mom breaks away from free time only to go to the same coffee shop hoping to make some new friends and open up doors for sharing the gospel. Just has a regular rhythm where she stops at the same place every day just to connect with people who are there. Or one more, maybe a single mom or a single woman who senses another single woman's discontentment or fear. And she makes it a point to come alongside of her for encouragement and to remind her of the goodness of her Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the main thing that discipleship is supposed to be back about in the church. It can't be programmed. It exists in the context of loving, faithful relationship. And it's as we go about doing that, opening our lives up, opening our calendars up, making margin in our, to, to let the Spirit guide and work so that we are able to help people follow Jesus and help people who follow Jesus follow Him more faithfully. That's all it is. That's the command. So don't put this paradigm on yourself or this program on yourself or this particular set of glasses on that says this is the way it's got to be done and if i'm not doing it this way i'm not doing it faithfully no the question to ask yourself is how am i currently and how can i in the future help people follow jesus and help people who follow him follow him more faithfully in the interactions, in the in the family that God has put me in, in the church that God has put me in, in the neighborhood God has put me in, among the people I work with. That is what we need to be asking. What in this workplace would, how can I behave in such a way as to help people who follow Jesus follow him more faithfully and help people who don't follow him begin to follow him? In my family, how can I do that? In my church, how can I do that? And if we'll just ask those questions and prayerfully consider, God will bring many things to our mind. And wonderful opportunities will be seized. And wonderful blessing will come from God. And wonderful discipleship will take place in the body of Christ. Having said that still, it is still a huge burden. It is the thing that Jesus has given us to do as his followers. We dare not miss it. And stand on the day of judgment with our mouths wide open, having done many good things, but not the one thing he asked of us. Think about that. This is what he's going to talk to us about. And so we need encouragement this morning. And that's what I want to do in these remaining minutes is just give you some substantive rock-solid, biblical encouragement that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 28 for how we can go about making disciples. And there are two kind of strands of encouragement I want to chase out. All right? I think we need two things if we're going to devote ourselves wholeheartedly to helping people follow Jesus and then helping people who follow him follow him more faithfully. I think we need two things. We need to be certain and we need to be comforted. We need to be certain that what we're going to do is not a big waste of time. And we need to be comforted that we're going to have strength to do it along the way. 
And Jesus gives us both of those things. So let's talk about, first of all, certainty. Don't, don't you know that when you, you know, nothing will deter us from doing something faster than believing that if we try, we're going to fail. And that there's no hope of success. Right? You, you evaluate that when you hear something or somebody says, hey, let's try this new diet. Or, hey, let's try this new activity. And you kind of look it over and you're like, yeah, not going to happen. I mean, you're because you're assessing the certainty with which you'll be able to fulfill it. Now, that's why Jesus doesn't start the, quote, Great Commission with a command. He starts it with a statement of risen Christ supremacy and fact. That's why he says in verse 18, Jesus came and says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now go. Now go. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So, is there anything Jesus can't do? No. Who sits on the throne of the universe? Christ. Who is directing the universe toward his purpose and making sure that that purpose gets fulfilled? Christ. Therefore, if we join him on that, we will not be on the wrong side of history. We will not be on the wrong side of history. We will be, when all is said and done, and the supremacy of Christ is put before the whole world, and his reign and rule is for all to see, we will know that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. But that's not... Now, this whole chapter gives evidences of his authority, not just his statement here in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. So let's tease out some of that authority. How did he get to this position of authority? He got to this position of authority because he conquered death and he rose from the dead and he left the tomb empty and the grave clothes were folded. So I want you to look here at what the in in verses 11 through 15 and how this gives us some certainty because of what's going on with the, the reports of the guards and what they're trying to do to cover up the resurrection of Jesus. Remember what they said, what Adam read for us? Here's what the guards say. Okay, he's gone. Okay, we got to spread this false report that the disciples stole the body. Now look back at the last chapter at the end of Matthew 27 and notice what the chief priests and the Pharisees were planning to do. Verse 62, the next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive after three days, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal the body away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Stop there. So their plan before the resurrection of Jesus is to so secure the tomb that the disciples can't steal the body away. But after he's risen from the dead, what's the change of their mission? Go tell everybody he's, they stole the body. Go tell everybody. Why? Because he rose from the dead. That's why. That's why. The fact that they admitted that the tomb was empty speaks volumes, doesn't it? It's interesting that Matthew records no one Anywhere saying that the tomb was not empty. They didn't have that trick in their pocket. Or they would have. They couldn't say, well, well, he's still in the grave. They found the wrong tomb. 
Nobody was saying that. Nobody was saying, well, he's put in the wrong grave. But the very actions of Jesus' enemies here, the very actions that they had taken prior to the resurrection, now serve to confirm the fact that the resurrection took place. Do you see that? Here's the story they tell. I said, okay, okay, all right. So we fell asleep, okay? We fell asleep. Here's the story we're going to tell. We fell asleep, okay? The disciples came by night. They stole the body. That's what we're going to, that's, that's what we're going to tell them. Now there, let me give you five serious problems with that line of argument. All right, real fast. I'm going to tick them off. All right. First of all, is it likely that Jesus' disciples who had abandoned him upon his arrest would come back and risk their lives in order to steal his dead body? No. The disciples are not around Jesus. Jesus has to go get them. All right. They're not coming back. They're not. So the fact that they have fled in horrific terror from the crucifixion of their Messiah means they're not coming back to get the body. Second, could they really have accomplished that kind of task without disturbing the guard's sleep? (laughs) What kind of task are they facing here? The removal of a huge boulder. I mean, we get, we get awakened if, you know, we hear a click in the house. Some of us, some of us have the gift of longer term unconsciousness. But so, I mean, you know, like what's the likelihood of roll, you know, they're going to get this boulder out of the way and, and take this Jesus out and fold the clothes conveniently and all this stuff and not disturb the, the guards sleeping. Third, is it really likely that all the guards would have fallen asleep? I mean, there were 12. So, If that's what's really happened, then why didn't the Jewish leaders prosecute the disciples of Jesus? To steal a dead body, especially when it was sealed in a tomb with an imperial seal, was a capital crime. So why didn't they chase down the disciples and prosecute them if they really stole the body? Because they didn't really steal the body. That's why. And if the guards were asleep, how could they have confirmed that it was the disciples who came by the night to take Jesus' body away? How'd they know that little piece of information? We fell asleep and the disciples came and the judge is sitting there, wait, hold on. If you're asleep, how do you know? So you see what all this is happening. This story is is so concocted and is so full of holes that it actually begins to vindicate and confirm the truth they're trying to deny. If you can deny the emptiness of Jesus' tomb, you can deny anything in history. Anything. You can deny that George Washington was the first president. Were you there? Did you see him? How do you know the documents weren't fabricated? Are you really sure that's his picture? You can deny that we've landed on the moon. You can deny that there was a holocaust. You can deny anything in history if you can deny the reality of the empty tomb. It's just too well attested. The reason, and here's the reason, the ultimate reason that people reject the resurrection is not because of any sort of intellectual argument. It's because people have an inherent, inveterate rejection of the supernatural, especially because to claim that Jesus rose from the dead makes them accountable morally to God. And they can't do what they want anymore. 
which is why in the academy and secular elites and whatever are trying to snuff out any hint of creation or whatever. You can't let Jesus get a foot in the door, at least not the biblical one. Because the biblical one has all authority in heaven on earth and whose universal lordship means that I can't live the way I want to live. So, the truth is easy to see. It's actually harder to reject. But there are a lot of people who are willing to work very, 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 much harder, very, very hard to reject it. Did you know this? It's a lot easier easier for a believer to believe the truth than it is for an unbeliever to deny the truth. The unbeliever has to work really, really hard to come up with some sort of explanation of how this thing is working out. The believer doesn't have to work that hard at all. Just believe the facts. So there's certainty. Okay? There is certainty. And if we know that the tomb is empty, if we know that Jesus conquered death, if we know that right now, And for all eternity, all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. Then we can open our mouths and know that God's going to do something. And we can open our lives to love others and know that God's going to do something. He's going to do something. And so we can have certainty and encouragement. There is, brothers and sisters, your feelings are not certain as this. What you think is not as certain as this. Don't let the way you feel or the way you've behaved in the past or whatever, don't let that crush you and put upon you this sort of, oh, I can never make disciples because, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm not really sure it would, you know, really work out. I'm not really sure that that would, you know, do it. No, it's not in your power to make disciples. Okay, Jesus makes disciples through you and through us as a community and through his people worldwide. So there's the certainty. Now let's give us the comfort. Notice Jesus tacks that on after his command in verses 19 and 20. Says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's spend the last five minutes here just Loving Jesus because he is absolutely breathtaking in his beauty in this chapter and the way he treats his fickle, unbelieving disciples. Anybody else want to put yourself in that camp? I'm in that camp. I am a fickle, fallen, sinful, unbelieving disciple who needs Jesus to work on me every single day to keep me in the faith. Are you that way? Are you that weak? I'm that weak. I'm that weak. I'm that needy. If he doesn't, I mean, if he can't use, use me, you know, if he chooses, then he can use anybody. He can use anybody. Anybody. And so what you'll see here in, in these few verses as we, as we stare at them will be an amazing picture of the comfort and beauty of Jesus to his weak disciples. He knows we're weak. Look, look at this. I just want to point out a couple of things. All right, this is in verses 1 through 10 in the first part of the chapter and the way he comforts the disciples. Now, the faithful women are there. Mary Magdalene and Mary, his mother, are there at the tomb. And there's a great earthquake that happens. Verse 2, an angel of the Lord comes, rolls back the stone and sits on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And then we see the angel saying, what does he say? What does he say to these women? 
What does he say? Verse 5, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Then he says, verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, just stop here. If you're a disciple and you've just received word from Mary Magdalene and Mary that you're supposed to go and meet Jesus, how are you going to feel about that meeting? Honestly, you're going to feel positive about that or you're going to feel like you're going to the principal's office? I mean, that's what I would feel like. I'd feel like I'm going to the principal's office. I just abandoned him. I just betrayed him. I just walked away from him. I just shunned him and rejected him and lied about him and in some cases turned him in. We are in trouble, Peter. So they go with fear and great joy. Notice that mingling. They're happy he's resurrected, but they're afraid what it might mean. They run to tell his disciples. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. I'm here. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him, which means that in that greeting, whatever he said communicated love to them. It communicated love and affection and welcome. And then Jesus said to them with exactly what the angel said, don't be afraid. And notice he says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Go and tell my brothers. Now, I know the disciples are not here in this particular passage, at least the 11. They're not here. It's just Mary Magdalene and Mary going and Jesus greeting them. But he's going to have the same kind of greeting for them when they get, when they see him. And I just want to point out this, that if you were the God of the universe and you had been resurrected from the dead, and you had been abandoned by your disciples in the hour of your need, what, what would the first words you have been, what would you have said to them? I, imagine this, I, the exalted God of heaven and earth, who was raised again from the dead, where were you in my hour of need? And shame and guilt and condemnation comes upon them. Is that the way Jesus interacts with his disciples? No, what you see is the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ and emphasizing to the women that the first words that his disciples must hear are these words. Welcome, my brothers. Welcome, my brothers. He doesn't want to relate to them as a sovereign God. He wants to relate to them as an elder brother. Brothers and sisters, you will never go on mission for Jesus if you don't aren't gripped by the love of Jesus for you. Some of you are not making disciples because you're paralyzed with guilt, shame, and fear. And my great desire for you, and I believe Jesus' great desire for you, is to feel afresh the love of God for you this morning. The absolute unmerited, no matter how you perform, Love of Jesus for you. 
When you walked into church this morning, no matter what kind of week you had, no matter how you sinned, no matter how you blew it with your wife or your husband, no matter how you treated your kids, no matter how you acted at work, no matter how you sinned at home, Jesus says to you this morning, welcome, my brother. Welcome, my sister. I am glad you are here to worship me this morning. I love you. I died for you. I rose from the dead for you. Come, hear my feet. Lay yourself out. You're welcome. You're welcome here. That's Jesus' attitude toward us as his disciples. And that's his attitude toward us every day of our lives. It doesn't mean that he ignores our sin. But it means that we matter to him more than our sin. He loves us. He loved you. He didn't die for the perfect you. He died for the ugly, sinful, wicked you. And it was you that he died for. Not just some nebulous blob mass of humanity. It was you that was written on his hands. You that was in his heart. And so as we come to this mission, we say, Jesus, the privilege. What privilege that we have. What certainty you have given us. What comfort you have supplied. If you will go with us, we will go with you. And may that be our response this morning. May you with renewed confidence and renewed comfort be able to walk out into your spheres of influence where the Lord has placed you among people. And may you with a heart full of love to Jesus because of his love for you, tell other people what Jesus has done for your soul. That's what people need to hear more than anything is how Jesus, what he means to you. And if, If he means something to you, you'll tell him. You'll tell him about it. Come, you who fear God, and I will share with you what he's done for my soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us this morning, which is a comfort to us and reminds us of our high calling as your people, but also the great confidence and comfort we can have as we live out that calling in the ordinary ways of life, to make disciples of you. God, help us in all of our lives to evaluate where we are, whether it be home, church, work, neighborhood, places we recreate, play, wherever we go. May we ask this question, how can I help people follow Jesus here? And how can I help those who follow him, follow him more faithfully? God, give us that burden, but motivate us not by guilt, but motivate us by love and comfort that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to you, Lord Jesus, and you are with us always, even to the end of the age, and how we thank you. In your name, amen.